Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. In today's episode, we're speaking with Jason Best, who's a co-founder and managing partner of Vector Fintech Partners, a member of the Vector Ventures family of funds designed to invest in fintech companies, primarily in the U.S. and Southeast Asia. Jason, thanks for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about what Vector Ventures is? And am I pronouncing it correctly? Because it's spelled V-E-C-T-R, right? That's it, Vector Ventures. So Vector Ventures was started by two gentlemen named Alan Chan and Arthur Law in 2014. And the first strategy on their investment platform was as a sector agnostic, early stage investment platform. I and my partner at Vector Fintech, Mark Munoz, joined as venture partners shortly after they launched the Vector Ventures platform and began making early stage investments since 2014. I invest primarily in Asia and North America, but we've also made investments in the Middle East and Europe. And the fund is based primarily where it started, I should say, out of Asia, right? But you're based in California. So tell us a little bit about the geographic dispersion of partners and all that. Sure. The base of operations is Hong Kong and has been since 2014 and remains there. And then we're building out the Vector platform. So there'll be a series of different focused funds on the platform, uh, of which one is the FinTech fund that Mark Munoz and I run. Mark's based in Hong Kong and I'm based in San Francisco. I started as a venture partner again in 2014. I've been based in San Francisco since the dot-com era. And so that really was a chance for us to broaden our footprint because we have a number of venture partners in different geographies around the world where we invest. So it gives Vector boots on the ground to be able to more easily access deal flow in particular geographies that we're interested in. And so in terms of the structure, you mentioned that you spearhead the fintech fund. It looks like you guys concentrate on consumer and deep tech and maybe one or two other verticals. What does the structure look like in terms of sector focus? So we've got two sector agnostic funds that are deploying currently. Then we have one of our second fintech focused funds, so early stage fintech, which is primarily B2B and B2B to C fintech. And then we'll have three more funds that'll be launching over the next few months that we'll be announcing shortly. And what's like the average ticket size that you guys rate about how many companies do you invest in per year? By the way, the website is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so shout out I to the team claim, that created that. Yeah, but. no, the creative folks that did that were amazing. I had absolutely nothing to do with the creativity of it. It looks great though. And we deploy checks of 500K to 2 million. And this is the FinTech fund strategy. We invest at the seed series A or, or somewhere in between. We lead it or we follow depending on the situation and our check size and our conviction. We tend to be high conviction investors at Vector Fintech. We're a $50 million vehicle for fund two, and we will probably deploy that into 18 or 19 companies. We write, we write a larger check up front to get ownership stakes and then retain follow-on capacity for the companies, especially in the current 2022 Q4 economic conditions. And are you really geography agnostic or do you have specific thesis around kind of different countries, different areas? How do you look at that? 
So part of what our LPs really appreciate about our fund is we are really concentrated primarily in North America and Asia. That's because we have relationships and footprint in both those places. Now we have, again, made a few investments outside of those two geographies, and that's for very specific reasons where we had particular insight, access, or opportunity. But our core deal flow operations are in those two regions. For Asia, we're mostly Southeast Asia with a bit of opportunism here and there. And then North America is primarily U.S. And so within fintech specifically, what sort of themes are particularly interesting to you right now? So we invest in the B2B or B2B2C spaces. Uh, and we are very founder driven at the seed and series A stage. We've gone back and looked at our portfolio, who the founder is and what she or he have done to make that business successful is incredibly important. And so we're looking for just the best founders in fintech. From a business model perspective or a sector of the industry perspective, there are three areas we really look at. And one is capital markets opportunities. So how do we make the public and private markets more effective, lower cost, more efficient, more compliant? easier to use. Number two is infrastructure. One of the things about the pandemic is the businesses had to figure out how to connect digitally with their consumer. All of the plumbing behind that website and everything that connected that business to its suppliers is pretty chaotic. <laughs> and so how do we fix all those problems that have been exposed and have been there for a long time, but COVID made it much more real and much more urgent to fix. And then third is what we call deep tech for fintech, which is primarily web three and AI solutions that are solving problems specifically for financial services and insurance firms. Fintech was a pretty hot area in the last few years. It seems to have cooled off in the last year. What's your take on just the market in general, or you, do you not see it that much at the early stage? Or how do you think about that? The data we've seen, the early stage at least, I know certainly in, in the late stage, late growth rounds, that has cooled significantly. Where we play at the early stage, there's been some price change, but activity is still quite high. 20% of all venture dollars went into fintech in Q2 of this year. And so that's only about 1% less than there was a year ago uh, from a percentage of venture early stage dollars. We definitely have seen prices come down in a lot of sectors, which is, I think, healthy. Things were over definitely on the high side before in our view. But we continue to believe that in a, you know, just like in COVID, when people's movement was physically restricted, we needed better ways to move money to process goods and services. In a recession or other kind of economic hardship times, the same will be true. We need to be able to have more efficient markets, more effective markets, and more movement of, of capital in a more frictionless way. And so we think that fintech will be resilient. It will be reshaped in some ways. It will be different than it was in last year's fintech models. I think you'll see less B2C models that are hoping for mass adoption and more things focused on B2B. We're more familiar with the market in the US. What is the market like in Asia? I know there've been some great examples of great fintech companies that are built. Usually overseas, you see a lot of the models where they say, oh, we're the firm of this country, right? Where they copy the model and create a new entity. Do you see that kind of innovation or do you also see kind of unique business models that maybe adapt to the geography? There's a lot of fintech in Asia that's far in advance of the U.S. And there are other models that are copy-paste. So I think both exist. The secure and frictionless movement of money has been around in Asia for years. And we really only discovered it during COVID with Venmo and Cash App and other things like that. And so there's some some of those, but you know the rails, kind of the cross-country, cross-border money movement, making stock, creating more access to financial products, insurance, those kinds of things, still huge opportunities across Southeast Asia. I think that one of the things that our LPs appreciate is the fact that they get access to two very different markets that do different various stages of development and, and sometimes at different price points. 
Right, and so that helps from a diversification of the portfolio perspective. What's your view of the current state of particularly U.S. venture right now? Do you think we're kind of status quo, obviously going to be in this kind of space for a while? Or do you think the hill goes farther downhill from here? What's your view on that? I wish I knew. We all wish we had a crystal ball, but what would you have to say? Yeah, I think my opinion is that we've got more to go on the downside from a vibration perspective. I think that the big question in my mind is of the dry powder estimates that are out there of how much dry powder is sitting on the sidelines ready to be deployed. How much of that has already been deployed? How much is really, you know, it's like if you say there's 160 billion that's in dry powder, we don't know is usually venture funds wait months or longer to announce deployment of capital into a business. And so there's usually a lag in understanding what the real dry powder number is. And so I think it's probably a lot less than the current estimates that we're seeing is my guess. Yeah, which is right now it's 200 and I think it's 260 or 280 billion. Yeah, yeah, 260 is what I saw recently. It's something less than that is my guess, which mm-hmm. is still a historically large amount of money available to, to support the company. So what I think it's that we saw prices decline over the summer. We're now seeing some examples of founders who are pushing, trying to push the upper bounds on valuations again already in September. I think that the public markets will have something to do with people's appetite to pay those early stage prices. I do think, though, what, what the, the good news for that is different from the dot-com era is there is durable capital and there is a large amount of capital yeah. that is prepared to step in and support successful companies and will. This sort of like nuclear wasteland that occurred in 01 and 02, just not being any capital, I think will be different. It will be difficult to get capital, but if you're building a successful business and you've got metrics to demonstrate that, I think there'll be capital for you. Yeah. And I think the other difference is that a lot of the companies have real business models and revenues that are growing very fast, whereas .com, there was a lot of like tulip mania. It's like what was happening in Web3 until March. Yeah, exactly. Did you guys slow down the pace of deployment Q1, Q2 of this year? Or how did you maneuver things in the beginning of the year as the market did start to change? So we are an always in market firm. We're always looking at deals. We never said we're probably hitting the pause button. I would say that our pace has remained the same because our process has remained the same. I know a lot of funds over the last two or three years decided that due diligence was a nice to have. Mm-hmm. and felt like after the 45-minute call, they were prepared to write a check. And we will find out how that worked out over the next couple of years. We've always had a process. We've always had a diligence process. It's always taken a few weeks to get through. It always will take a few weeks to get through. And we think that's hopefully will serve our LPs well. Do you want to, looking at your portfolio, do you want to maybe give us a couple of examples, maybe a U.S. company and then a company from Asia and Just talk about what they do, why you like them, what is the thesis that you bought into? So I guess there's, so the one one from the U.S. is really interesting. It's called Plunk, based in Seattle. Plunk is a real estate tech company, which as real estate prices are changing, residential real estate prices are changing so rapidly these days. I think it's particularly interesting. We have a a number of industry, kind of real estate industry co-investors in that deal, which was very exciting. And really what this does is provide real-time estimations on your home value. Not only what it is today, but then you're also able to use their AI to say, what would be the place to spend if I have $50,000 to spend on a renovation? Where should I spend it? And how much should I spend on my kitchen remodel? If you've got a $400,000 house, you probably shouldn't spend $200,000 on the kitchen remodel. Uh, and so like, how do you know what to spend and how? And then how do you connect with the people to make those renovations? And so if more people are staying in their homes longer, more renovations taking place during a time of price dislocation, like we're in currently and may be in for a while. 
We think this is a particularly interesting company. The founders have a deep experience in real estate and in AI. And so they're the right team. They've, had, they've each had two exits previously and a great slate of industry co-investors. So much higher level of precision than some of the other kind of average brokerage estimates that you see out there. And more real time. So instead of being a three to six month lag or just incorrect because of the way the, the, it's, the, the data model is just very much superior to what's available today. Got it. And how about one from Asia? Well, this one was in the US, but then moved to Asia and it's called Paradigm. Paradigm is the institutional OTC, so over-the-counter kind of large block trading solution for institutional crypto. So if you want to trade five or $10 million worth of crypto in a trade with these large blocks, then you would use Paradigm. And so they're now based in Singapore. We led the pre-seed, we co-led the seed with Dragonfly Capital, and we were the largest allocation into the A after the leads, which were Jump and Alameda. And so they just raised their Series A last year. And it's an incredible founder who came from seven years of experience trading derivatives in the traditional markets, energy and currency derivatives. So really understand that, understood that deeply and wanted to apply that market knowledge to the crypto markets because three and a half years ago when he started the business, the crypto derivative markets was a fraction of what it is today. And so he really wanted to follow the Peter Thiel model of own a large piece of a small market, which he now has done. Got it. And Jason, would love to hear about your background and how you got into venture. I came into the operator window, and so I was on the operator founder side in healthcare tech companies, and I was a part of two successful exits in the healthcare tech space. I was one of the exec team members. Then another friend of mine and I, we were both figuring out what was going to be our next thing we wanted to do. We were at a friend's wedding and started talking about the lack of access to capital for early stage founders. This was in August of 2010. The recession was on and there were a lot of problems. I, I live in San Francisco, half for a long time, but I'm from a small town in Louisiana where there is no access to capital, where there's the bank or your rich uncle, and that's it. You know, there are lots of smart people all over the world who just need access to capital. And so the reason why, why that was a problem is that because of the securities laws written in the 1930s that restricted the ability for regular investors to invest in private companies, that prohibition had been in place for a long time. It didn't make sense anymore. What made sense back when most people did not have a landline telephone in their house in the 1930s does not make sense in the age of Facebook and Twitter and the real-time web. And so this friend of mine and I began by creating a policy framework we called the startup exemption. We took it to Washington, D.C. and just started talking to people. We had no experience in D.C. We started talking to people who would listen about entrepreneurship, innovation, and job creation that could be created by opening up the capital markets to retail investors. I think your answer to our four question series for number one is going to be the best that we have. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, obviously, but I'm just going to go ahead and forecast that. And we spent 460 days working in DC. We testified in front of the House and Senate five times. We built a really strong relationship with the Obama White House, but that's a funny story in and of itself. And at the end of it all, our framework, our policy framework we created became the crowdfunding language in the JOBS Act. And we were in the Rose Garden of the White House to watch President Obama sign that into law in April of 2012. Wow. That's awesome. That's great. And so that got me into fintech. And then I wasn't sure what was going to happen next, but then the phone started to ring and different country governments and regulators wanted to know more about what is this fintech? What is this crowdfunding? How does this all work? So the World Bank, we did a research report for the World Bank on developing economy crowdfunding. We worked in with a number of different country governments and regulators, financial institutions, fintech entrepreneurs, 
So over the course of seven years, ended up working in 45 countries around the world on these issues. So there's really no early stage VC that's got more regulatory experience than I do. All the scars are visible on my back. Then I met my partners in Hong Kong. I was working, doing a, um, an engagement for the State Department in Hong Kong. And I became, uh, became a venture partner in, in the GP. Rest is history. That's a great story and, and great background. What do you love about being a venture capitalist? Getting to work with entrepreneurs and just being at early stage is more alchemy and more art and later stage is more science. Later stage is Excel. And I think I just, for me, I think everybody's got what excites them, what drives them. And for me, it's that trying to take the raw material of a founder and an idea and try to be helpful in allowing them to grow it into whatever it is that is their vision and trying to help here and there along the way, but trying to help them achieve what it is they want to achieve. And hopefully that's successful. Given this founder first framework that you have, and you mentioned the importance of the founder now a couple of times, what do you think are the most important qualities to, to making an exceptional founder? What do you look for? So the things we look for are founder product, founder market fit. Like, so in B2B fintech, a lot of things, this is not true, but in B2B fintech, you need to have some financial services or fintech experience because it's a highly regulated space. You can't ask for forgiveness. You have to ask for permission and understanding some of those things underneath the waterline are really important. So that kind of background is helpful. Number two, so the next, that usually leads to a founder who has thought deeply about a problem and has a very specific solution for it. Then the ability to bring in a couple of other people who are willing to work for little or nothing to achieve this vision that they've created. Then the ability to execute and actually get something done with not much. And then a track record of execution. Obviously, every VC loves to see someone who's had multiple exits. That's great. But we are also happy to invest in first-time founders who exhibit the right kind of characteristics that we can be successful. No guarantees ever in this business, obviously, but something can be successful. Given your background in regulatory frameworks, I would be remiss not to ask about how you see Asia from a regulatory perspective allowing private companies. And the reason why I ask is occasionally we have these debates with our operations team that loves companies that are registered in Delaware because they know that, right? But then you go to India or you go to Malaysia and they're like, I don't know anything about that. And increasingly we hear about kind of Singapore becoming kind of the Delaware of Asia. So I'd love to hear your take about where they are in terms of making things easy for the entrepreneurial ecosystem or for capital investors to put money in the companies. Yeah, I think Singapore is for anybody in Southeast Asia or India, almost all of those companies are registered in Singapore. And so then they have an operating uh, operating companies. It'll be in the local country, but it'll all be owned 100% by the, the top co, which is usually for Southeast Asia and India is in Singapore. Sometimes you see where companies think they're going to be going directly to the U.S. market for whatever reason for capital. They will go ahead and set up a Topco in Delaware. But Singapore, they are a very business-friendly place. They want to be the hub for Southeast Asia. Got it. So streamlined operations and easy to do business. Very streamlined operations, very transparent regulation, very easy to understand. That used to be Hong Kong, right? <laughs> that used to be Hong Kong, I thought. Hong Kong still has a great regulatory framework. Hong Kong still has all that in place. The COVID restrictions have slowed that down, but I think that seems to be clearing up now. So I think that Hong Kong will resume its role as a major financial center. I just think that it was just the COVID restrictions kind of slowed things down for a bit. But Hong Kong is an excellent regulatory environment for a clarity perspective and from a transparency perspective. And given that we are do all doing more things online these days, what is it like from a work perspective to be 
so far from your other partners? And do you travel there often? Like, how do you guys work the diligence, for example? So pre-COVID, I was spending almost half my time in Asia, half my time here. Obviously, COVID changed that, and I didn't get a chance to go for two years. Next year, I'll be going back to quarterly. I'll be there for about a month, a quarter, and then rotating around. So I'll be there frequently. Like all of us, we learned how to work remotely in a way we never thought possible. We never thought we would ever invest in a company without meeting founders several times in person, which we've done. Uh, We've had a number of our LPs that are only now meeting because they made their investment decision in our fund through Zoom. And so we've all had to adapt to that. But luckily with my jobs over my entire career, I've always had 50 to 75% travel. So it's very comfortable and easy for me and I don't mind it. So I just do it. I know you're focused on on fintech now, but obviously health tech is a big topic these days and especially moving forward. What do you think the future of health tech looks like? So my knowledge is a bit dated on the healthcare tech, but I will say this. One of the things that I continue, whenever I do see headlines about the healthcare tech space, a lot of people don't understand that what it comes down to is dollars and cents, especially in the U.S. You need to have a product or technology product or service for healthcare that, of course, solves a clinical problem, right? That's like basic. But what it must do, that's not even table stakes. What it must do is it must solve a financial problem for the buyer. Because while the doctor or the hospital administrator may be talking about patient care and outcomes and those sorts of things, what they need to hear from you, I can do this more efficiently with fewer people. I can expand my marketing and do more, I'll offer more services. I can get a raise from my boss so I can put my daughter through college. Very personal reasons, right? And so you have to think about it from a standpoint of like, how are you helping that, whatever the healthcare business is to achieve their business goals. So switching gears, we're going to move into our four standard question segment. We're looking forward to hearing your answers, particularly on question one. The National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. If there is one thing that you would change about the VC industry or one policy that you would advocate for, what would it be? So in the JOBS Act, we've been able to get some revisions over the years into increasing the amounts of money that you can invest. So now retail investors can invest in our companies and raise up to $5 million U.S. million from retail investors in a round. That's a proper series A, right? A proper seed round for sure. And so that's really great. The one thing that the law specifically said, and this was a drafting in the Senate bill, was that you did not allow for crowdfunding a fund, which is counterintuitive in my mind, because if early stage investing is high risk, because it is, wouldn't we want to allow retail investors to get into pooled risk vehicles like a fund in a rational way? But for whatever reason, that didn't make it into the final version of the bill. And I think, you know, there are now almost $2 billion raised through equity crowdfunding from retail investors, $2 billion. That's from all 50 states from 1,500 cities and towns across the country. That's in almost 95% of all SAIC codes. So diagnostic, everything from A to Z. And so this has been, this is a real asset class now. There's been over five, almost 6,000 companies that have raised debt or equity capital from retail investors. And so this is, and especially in a recession, is going to be an important part of how companies think about their capital raising needs. And so the ability for retail investors to invest in funds that will accept them, but not that they're not that a fund is going to be required to accept retail investors. If they sign off on that, I think that they, they, they would be really important. The ability to do that would be really important. The core, the, the thing next to that that I think is important is the ability for there to be more educationally accredited investors. 
So already you've seen the law where if you have a series seven, or if you're a lawyer, or if you're a CPA, you can gain accredited status through your education, through your background. I think we should think about how to broaden that out because essentially what we need is just a very simple appropriateness test of saying, do you understand risk? Do you understand diversification? Do you understand the basics of investing to enable you to have some sort of certification, which could, you know, ride on the blockchain or somewhere else to allow you to invest in more sophisticated investments? Long answer, sorry. No, great answer. Number two, if you weren't a VC and money was not a concern, what career would you have? I would be a coach for entrepreneurs and do it for free. So obviously, because you mentioned it earlier on in the podcast, what about entrepreneurship excites you so much? Because it seems like a very strong passion of yours. It is for all of us, right? Otherwise, what are we doing? But it's a different answer sometimes for everyone. Yeah. I mean, it's creating the future. It's creating the future from nothing. It is willing something into existence that can change people's lives. That sounds very dramatic, but that's essentially what this is. And it's like the last healthcare tech company I was at was called Kinzer Software. And we were one of the Inc. 500's fastest growing companies in the US three years in a row. And what we did before we sold it, and then what it, it was the first mobile enabled electronic medical record for the home health industry, which enabled a different way for nurses to do their business, to to do their work and rehabilitating patients across the country. That was the founder's vision, which he created from nothing. Right. It absolutely is. Number three, who is someone that you look up to and why? A gentleman by the name of Denmark West, whose friendship and mentorship was instrumental in me being in this job. He has been a successful corporate executive. He's been a successful early stage VC who's made, who's invested in his VC fund experience, has three unicorns to his name that he was in the seed round with. And he also now is running a, a corporate venture program for a large technology company in the US. And really it's just his patience and support and helping me learn this business in a way that I wouldn't have been able to without him. He also has one of the coolest names I've ever heard. He should start like a fashion label or a brand of whiskey or something. He's a super cool guy. So yes, sounds like it. Number four is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? It's an old one that everybody already knows, but it's proven itself many times. It's the old Maya Angelou quote. When someone shows you who they are the first time, believe them. And it's just over and over again, that kind of how is how it is. And just actions speak louder than words. And especially in this business, it's people will say many, lots of things. And really it's, it comes down to how they act in high pressure situations or in the tough times that let you know who they are. Yes, hundred percent. That's a great piece of advice too. Jason, thank you very much for joining us. They really appreciated your time and great to get to know more about your fun. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it and I hope you guys have a great day. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at proof.vc. 